Good news. It's kind of a funny topic for Memorial Day weekend. Just a few months ago, I talked about the military here at West and the importance of being aware of the wars that we engage in, not burying our heads in the sand, but making the loss, the pain of war and violence real to us. But you know, everything in life is a balance. And today, as we finish our monthly theme of beauty, I want to explore the flip side of that, the idea that too much bad news, and especially too much bad news delivered in a sensationalistic way, can do us damage. So I wonder, where do you get your news from? The only TV news that I watch is Jon Stewart. (laughs) It's really true. Otherwise, I read it online. I have to be able to control the content that's coming at me. I have to create the boundaries with which I engage with that information. The 24-hour news cycle on MSNBC or Fox or um, CNBC, or I've probably missed a whole bunch of them, it's overwhelming to me. It focuses on the negative in a way to catch our attention, to bring the sensationalistic into our lives. And so I've been wondering why that is and what we can do about it. Noticing the negative, picking up on the negative, it turns out is actually part of our brain structure, part of how we've evolved in some ways in a positive manner. My mother, who's a psychologist, reminds me that uh, knowing that that particular bug is poisonous is actually a really um, helpful evolutionary trait. And remembering those negative pieces of information more than the positive has some, is something that the human brain has developed to do to keep us safe and keep us whole. But it also works against us. The psychologist Rick Hansen writes, The brain's negativity bias, which preferentially scans for, reacts to, stores, and recalls negative information about oneself and one's world, The brain is like Velcro, he says, for negative experiences, and Teflon for positive ones. The natural result is a growing and unfair residue of emotional pain, pessimism, and numbing inhibition in implicit memory. So it seems to me that if we have a brain that absorbs the negative more than the positive, what we need to do is make sure that we are feeding it with enough positive news. It's not just our brain, too. I think in some ways it's all of society. Good stories are seen as naive or overly optimistic. I was thinking about the phrase, oh, it's just too good to be true. Have you ever heard of something being too bad to be true? We can be, I think, problem-focused, based on the idea that there's always another problem out there, and and indeed there is. But at the same time, we know that part of a spiritual life or as a West member described it beautifully the other day, a wisely lived life, is recognizing beauty around us. There is an innate human need, I think, to see the beauty and the good. Some of you may follow my blog, which is called Yearning for Goodness. That comes from a quote from Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture. And the the full quote is, The human spirit yearns for goodness as the eye longs for beauty. 
This may be a semantic difference, but I do wonder sometimes if it's our brain that seeks out or responds to the negative, and really our spirit, as Adler names it, that yearns for goodness. And I want to return to that question a little bit later. Whatever it is that's doing the yearning, we know we need it. And so I set out to try to discover who is offering good news these days. Well, it turns out there's the goodnewsnetwork.org, an online resource for good news. Although the favorite thing that they had, in, in my opinion, was a T-shirt that says very simply, good happens, kind of the um, alternative to those other T-shirts you see, which is not good happening. Good News Network tries to offer a balance to all of the bad news out there, and it has headlines from Italy dedicates 1,400-year-old olive tree to Michelle Obama. It turns out that's in support of her Healthy Living Initiative. Two, Egyptians vote freely for a leader today, first time in 29 years. The founder of Good News Network, Jerry Weiss-Corbley, writes this, Uplifting news is difficult to learn to appreciate for some. The urge to look rather to the sensational feels more familiar, popular media having fed the habit for decades. I, she goes on, I want to make familiar, like family, the kind of news that moves us to tears for enthusiasm over a life well-lived. Along with the Good News Network, there's Yes! Magazine, which reframes, in its words, reframes the biggest problems of our time in terms of their solutions. I found a Yes! magazine article by Jeremy Adam Smith looking at the idea that human beings really want goodness, not the negative and not violence, that there's an innate need for goodness instead. He writes, sociologist Randall Collins comes to a conclusion in his massive study, Violence. And then, the Hobbesian image of humans, judging from the most common evidence, is empirically wrong, he writes. Humans are hardwired for interactional entrainment and solidarity, and this is what makes violence so difficult. Steven Pinker, a psychologist and writer, agrees in a massive volume that some of you may have started, and tell me if you've finished it, The Better Angels of Our Nature. Uh, It's really hundreds and hundreds of pages, and I've pretty much gotten as far as downloading it on my Kindle. So that's I'm still in the 1%, you know, 1% completed. Um, So apparently there are many better angels of our nature. Um, Pinker's idea is that we are actually living in the least violent age in history, which is good news itself. He looks at massive data sets and presents graphs and all of these ideas. And he agrees, too, that we don't hear a lot of the good news. No one, he writes, has ever recruited activists to a cause by announcing that things are getting better, and bearers of good news are often advised to keep their mouths shut lest they lull people into complacency. Part of the idea of Pinker's book is that if we can understand that the arc of the universe does indeed bend toward justice rather than the opposite, which we may sometimes think, we can, in his words, appreciate the small gifts of coexistence that would have seemed utopian to our ancestors. And we can try for an even better world by focusing on what's going right in this one. So I wondered what makes good news especially good. How do you, you know, qualify to get on goodnewsnetwork.org or to be featured in Yes! magazine? And I posted that question on Facebook the other day and asked people to comment on what had made them smile, what had lifted their spirits in the last few weeks. I got some comments about political progress, progress toward justice work. 
One person posted about the story of the little boy who created a cardboard arcade. And if you haven't seen that, Google cardboard arcade and enjoy. Someone posted a great movie fable about the importance of smiling and validating each other set in the framework of getting free parking validated. And one person who I do not think of as sappy at all and actually a little fierce in her justice work said that her favorite thing to watch is Undercover Boss. You know that show where bosses go and and pretend to be just workers in one of the restaurants from this huge chain they own and then learn all about the lives of their workers. She said even when it's really sappy, she loves it. A West person posted about Israel Loves Iran, which is a movement, an international movement to to affirm that the people of Israel and the people of Iran don't hate each other and don't want war. You can find that on Facebook and by Googling as well, and it is indeed heartening. There's something about all of these, I think, that speaks to personal connection, to the characters of the story, something that makes us want to recognize the human spirit in another person. And that's backed up by research as well. In that same Yes Magazine article, there's some information that says when a team of psychologists ran a study of two fundraising appeals, one emphasizing a girl's story, the other the number of people affected by the problem. It's the girl's story that pulls at people's heartstrings, that helps them to feel connected to each other. In a fascinating cognitive twist, the author writes, this appeal to reason, the numbers of people affected, actually stunts our altruistic impulses. What we want, what we long for, is the sense of human connection. Real relationships are obviously the cornerstone of this connection, but even reading about, learning about people who are connected who promote the idea of friendship and love can make us happy. So I want to tell you a couple of good stories different from each other this morning, some in my words and some in other people's words. The first is actually a New York Times article, which caught my eye. It's about the nurse-family partnership, and it caught my eye because of Ethical Culture's historical connection to the Visiting Nurses Association, which was begun during Felix Adler's time out of the New York Society for Ethical Culture. Well, the nurse-family partnership is something relatively similar. Registered nurses visit at-risk mothers uh, regularly until the child is two. And it's been studied for effectiveness by age 19 using this particular model. The children whose families have been visited are 58% less likely to have committed a crime. There's a statistic somewhere in that article that every dollar spent on the program yields uh, $5.37 in societal benefits. In other words, saves society that money in care that's not needed for the family because of the care they received in the beginning. Here is how David Bornstein, who wrote the article in the New York Times, describes one particular uh, nurse-family partnership. Consider the relationship between Rita Erickson and Valerie Carberry. Rita had had a methadone addiction for 12 years and was living from place to place in Lakewood, Colorado. She found out she was pregnant. A parole officer told her about NFP, Nurse Family Partnership. I'd bird bridges with my family, Rita told me. I was running around with the wrong people. I didn't have anyone I could ask about being pregnant. In the early months, Valerie, the nurse, had to chase her around town, Rita recalled. I was worried she might say, this is too much hassle. Come back when you have your act together. But she stuck with me. 
Over the next two years, they embarked on a journey together. I had a zillion questions, Rita recalled. I was really nervous at first. I had lived most of my adult life as a drug addict. I didn't know how to take care of myself. On visits, they discussed everything, prenatal care, nutrition, exercise, delivery options. After Rita's daughter, Danica, was born, they focused on things like how to recognize feeding and disengagement cues, remembering to sleep when the baby sleeps. It's <laughs> a good idea. How to manage child care so Rita could go back to school. For Rita, what made the biggest impression was hearing how a baby's brain develops, how vital it was to talk and read a lot to Danica and to use love and logic so she develops empathy. Once Valerie explained that when babies are touching their hands, they're discovering that they have two. To me, that was really amazing, Rita said. This month, Rita is graduating from Red Rocks Community. I should tell you that I cry when I am reading good stories, so I'm just going to talk right through it. You guys can cry with me if you'd like to. This month, Rita is graduating from Red Rocks Community College with an associate degree in business administration. She's going to transfer to Regis University to do a bachelor's degree. Her faculty selected her as outstanding graduate based on leadership and academic achievement, and she was asked to lead the graduation procession and give one of the commencement speeches. Danica, that's the little girl, is thriving. Rita said, recently she came home from preschool and announced, Mommy, I didn't have a good day at school today because I made some bad decisions and you wouldn't be proud of me. She had pushed another child in the playground, right? She's an amazing four-year-old. As for the nurse family partnership, Rita says that it helped her recover from her own bad decisions. When Valerie came along, she, Rita, needed help badly. I didn't care about my life. I didn't care about anything. I never, ever thought I would have ended up where I am today. So that was good news. Here's another one that I found in Yes! magazine in an article by Madeline Ostrander. This is a story about Heather Purser, a young woman who won marriage equality within the Squamish tribe, of which she is a member. Madeline Ostrander writes, For four years, Heather Purser fought quietly but persistently for the right to get married. Then last summer, she captured the attention of state politicians and national media when she persuaded her small tribal community in western Washington state to write gay marriage into its constitution. Months later, Purser was awestruck to find herself in Washington Governor Christine Gregoire's office on a rainy afternoon, minutes after the governor announced that she would push the state legislature to recognize gay marriage. Gregoire had gathered a small celebratory circle of gay rights advocates in her office. Heather herself had had a hard childhood, growing up in the Squamish tribe, but only half Squamish by descent. She has red hair and freckles, and so she felt like an outsider from the beginning. She went to college where she found herself and came out as gay, and then returned to the tribe and drifted using marijuana, hanging out at friends' houses, not really clear about direction. Finally, she decided she needed to do something, and she began the journey of asking the tribe to accept same-sex marriage. Here is how she describes the moment of decision. Then I brought it up at the general council meeting, where everyone in the community shows up and votes once a year. Before I went, okay, whew. Before I went to the general council meeting, I talked with friends. They said, don't get your hopes up. I felt like I was doing the wrong thing, being selfish. Maybe people shouldn't have to care about gay rights. The hardest part, she goes on, was admitting to people that I didn't feel equal to everyone in the room. 
I asked if they would accept me and grant me this right to feel like I belonged in my own tribe. I was afraid they would say, no, we don't want that in our tribe. There were 300 to 400 people at the meeting. I told them I felt like I was a second-class citizen. I said that I might want to get married someday. Then I asked the council if they would approve same-sex marriage in our tribal constitution. I sat down. A friend in the audience said to me, Heather, you have to make them vote on it right now because otherwise they're not going to do anything. So I stood back up and asked for a vote. It was a unanimous decision. Isn't that just great? (laughs) She goes on. I felt happy, just happy. I turned around. My dad and my two brothers had gotten up and stood behind me during the vote. Her father had rejected her when she first came out. And they were waiting to give me a hug. I felt that people heard me say I was isolated, and they wanted to do whatever they could could to help me feel like I belonged. As I looked for stories to share with you this morning, and as I tell these stories, it was kind of a cryy time yesterday, looking through the internet, I realized that there is something about the unexpected that especially calls to us. We love to see goodness arise in the least likely of circumstances, to see beauty arise. We love to see Susan Boyle, remember her, homely and awkward, open her mouth and sing like an angel. We love to see, this was from a few years back, the boy with autism, allowed on the basketball team just in an effort to be nice to him so he could wear the jersey, Sink six three-pointers as the crowd cheers. In a world with so much bad news, we practically crave the good news. There's something moving about recognizing the beauty that the world holds, the goodness in other people. You know, I have found over time that when I cry, it's because I've hit on something important something so important that I can barely get the words out, something religious. And I think that for me, that's where I come down with these stories of good news, the stories of good people. They're stories about our religious lives and our religious convictions. The stories that I am most drawn to are ones about connection between people, about people doing and being good. There was a series I remember a couple of months back that the New York Times had on simple fixes to world health problems. It was a great series, really cool reading and fun to see what was happening in rural Thailand and parts of Africa and in America and Delta states. But what was really moving to me was not the particular health fix, but the fact that people all over the world were working on these problems, were finding solutions, were training folks in how to implement them in their own community, in their own communities. That's what we yearn for, for knowing that other people are good. To me, that's what Adler meant when he said, our spirit yearns for goodness. We say here at the Ethical Society that our faith is in human goodness. And we often say, and rightly so, that like Felix Adler, we affirm that worth, we ascribe it, even when we, won't, when we don't see it. That's what having faith is about, right? We may not always see the proof for human goodness in a particular person, but we know it's there. We affirm that it exists. But 
But you know, sometimes proof is nice. For me, these kinds of stories are a way of solidifying our faith as humanists, our faith in the good in each person. In that way, I think you can find good stories, moving stories, even in hard things. There's a video that's been going around of um, a demonstration in North Carolina before the recent vote there, where in an orchestrated effort, same-sex headed families went to the Bureau and applied for marriage licenses and were denied one by one. But the thing that made me cry in that video was the dignity with which they were denied, the dignity with which they were treated by the clerks who each time said, I'm sorry, I can't accept your application. I'm sorry. And some said, I hope I can someday. Even in that hard moment, the good in the human spirit shone through. And I think really that's what we're looking for in good news. We're looking for a little bit of proof now and again that people are good, looking at reminders to ourselves to be good. You know, the word gospel, the books that make up the heart of the, the Christian tradition, that word means good news. Every religious tradition has good news, news that makes our hearts glad. May we remember to tell the very good news of human beauty and human love.